Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Mariella Meets. I'm Mariella Frostrup, and each week I'll be bringing you a selection of the best interviews from our favorite guests. Movers and shakers from the worlds of art and entertainment, politics, business, music, and wider society. To discuss everything from their latest endeavors to career highlights and early beginnings. Intimate, in-depth talk with pioneering talents and fascinating folk discussing the stuff that matters to them and how they scaled the slippery slopes of success. My guest is one of the few women in the world who's managed to make it to the top job in the political sphere. Hella Thorning-Schmidt was the 26th Prime Minister of Denmark, serving from 2011 to 2015. Since leaving office, she's been CEO of Save the Children and more recently joined Facebook as co-chair of their oversight group. She also works on health and sustainable development for Europe for the World Health Organization and splits her time between Denmark and the UK, in particular South Wales, where her husband Stephen Kinnock is MP. Those of you who enjoy social media may recall her selfie between Barack Obama and David Cameron at Nelson Mandela's memorial. Hella joins me now. Hella, I know you're probably grimacing at the mention of that selfie, but really it was no, such an sure. innocent, it's celebratory my, moment. My background, yeah. No, I accept that totally. That was my, um, my claim to fame globally, <laughs> so uh, I accept that totally. Were you surprised that after all your magnificent achievements in your career, it took one selfie to kind of explode you on the global it, platform? I was actually, and this happened overnight because I went to South Africa and uh, there was this memorial and uh, we took that selfie and obviously David Cameron, he, uh, he muscles himself into that selfie. And, um, well, it was meant to be a twosome, left, was it? <laughs> and I left uh, Johannesburg and that, this was a time where you didn't have Wi-Fi on the plane and I landed in Frankfurt and then suddenly I was uh, globally famous. So literally happened overnight. And a salutary lesson in the power of social media, which perhaps we'll go on to talk about in a bit. Uh, Indeed. But I wanted to talk to you first just a little bit about uh, Young Hella, because obviously it is still, sadly, extremely unusual to have a world leader who's uh, a woman. And I wondered if becoming prime minister was uh, on your to-do list as a uh, Danish teenager. Yeah, it was, but it wasn't. Uh, actually, I, I grew up in an extremely uh, normal background. I didn't know anyone in politics. Uh, I, I, I was completely detached from what politics might, was. 
Uh, but my parents were very uh, interested in politics and voting was a big deal in my household and we discussed politics. So I guess that's why I got this uh, urge to be part of changing things. And I remember very clearly if I was unhappy about something in school and spoke to my mum and dad about that in the evening, they would often turn around and said, so what have you tried to do about that yourself? So I learned very quickly that if you want to change you have to you have to try to uh, to voice to, to talk about what change you, you wanted to take your agency and uh, to try to be part of that change yourself so i think that was a lesson i came with from from my household but i didn't know anyone in politics and came into politics quite late but i will tell you this that my my father always said to me and my sister who's uh, who's older than me he always said to us uh, that he thought we could be anything we wanted to be and he thought we should be prime ministers but he expected us to be able to think and be able to change things. And uh, he thought there was there was no limit to what we could actually be. We've been perhaps surprised to find ourselves in bed uh, with Denmark recently in terms of policy towards refugees and asylum seekers, you know, and talk of, you know, sending people to islands, you know, specific places to, to be processed and, and, and so on. I suppose why that feels shocking when it comes to Denmark is we think of Denmark as this incredible liberal democracy, you know, where everyone flies the flag, eats Danish cheese every day and, and lights candles to, to increase, uh, you know, the higge in their, or I'm not sure if I've even pronounced that correctly, in their homes. And yet there is another side to the country, isn't there? And, 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 and I think it's quite important that, that we understand that, that Scandinavia isn't just perfect. <laughs> No, I mean, I, I obviously, as leader of my party for 10 years, one of the issues that I tried to change my own party was that we had to have a little bit of a firmer view on immigration and uh, and guarding our borders. And I never saw it as not being um, a humane thing to, to talk about, that you have to watch your borders. There, of course, is a limit to how many uh, people from outside that uh, can come to a small country like like Denmark and perhaps the UK as well. So I think it's very important to find that balance between talking about immigration and the problems that might might occur from immigration, but doing so in a, in a of course, non-racist and balanced human way. And I, I always try to strike that balance uh, when I was the leader of my party. I might not always agree on where where they're going now in the in, in Denmark. But I do think that it's very important to have these conversations without being uh, called a bigot or racist. And I definitely tried to strike that balance and, and actually think I succeeded in doing so. Uh, and I never heard anything bad from the immigrant community in Denmark. I still feel that I'm very much connected to that part of the Danish community. So there is a way of talking about immigration uh, and integration in a way that is not seen as, as a racist in any way and actually being being just a conversation which you have to have uh, in a normal way. But do you think it's a conversation that has evolved and that we are managing to achieve that or do you think it remains very much a divisive issue? It's a divisive issue because that you need to have people in, on the, in the middle of the political ground to discuss these things in, in a constructive way. I'm not saying that I was always striking that balance perfectly, but I tried so hard to talk about what kind of issues can be brought up with immigration. Uh, is there a new crime that we uh, we have to look at? 
Are there culture clashes that we have to discuss openly? And I do feel you can discuss these things without having being racist. So this is what I, I feel that we are lacking in many countries, this balanced way of talking. And if you don't have that, I do think you give way to the most extreme right wing movements, then they then they monopolize this kind of conversation. So I know this is very hard to grasp that you can have this middle way conversation, but I actually tried to do that as leader of my party. And I think that was part of the success we had. We ended up uh, building up the party again. And, and I left the party when we had, I mean, the most people voting for us in many, many years, every fourth day voted for us when I left the party. So that was very a very good result. And I think part of the reason was that we, we actually found the balance in this extremely difficult conversation. You use the word balance and middle ground, and they're not words that uh, we, we associate particularly with contemporary politics at all. You know this country very well. We'll go on and talk a little bit about the fact that you're married to Stephen uh, Kinnock perhaps uh, later. But, you know, we are not a fan of coalitions in this country, you know, as Nick Clegg, I think, discovered, um, you know, to his frustration, perhaps, when, when we had a coalition government briefly. Uh, you yourself, of course, were part of a, a coalition government in Denmark. Do you think that increased polarization, which is what seems to be happening in the political spectrum at the moment, is actually the enemy to good democracy, working democracy? Because middle ground is really important and coalition seems to me to be integral to the idea of middle ground or compromise at least. Absolutely. I think we have to remember that democracy is not only about majority rules. Uh, and majority takes the winner takes it all. I mean, I love the UK. I live in London. I'm very happy to be in the UK. I love the atmosphere. I love I love so many things about Britain. So I, I don't never want to be that foreigner who comes in and criticizes the country that has given me so much. But I do think that that when you have a democracy that is based on majority ruling so much. Uh, you also tend to forget that the minority might have something to say. And you forget that meeting and having a dialogue about things and listening very carefully to the to minorities, uh, or minorities and the minority uh, can be extremely helpful in finding a good political result. And I think the political culture over many years in this country has been uh, that the majority decides there's no need to listen to the opposition, uh, thus the minority. Uh, you don't have to listen to the regions uh, of this country or the different nations of this country very much. And that actually pushes democracy back. So I strongly believe in democracy, which is inclusive, where you have to listen to people you don't agree with uh, and listen hard and also find the middle ground in politics. And I do think part of the success in, in many of the Scandinavian countries that is that we have had uh, coalition governments. I was leader of the coalition governments with three parties and it was on top of that a minority government. So we had to find a majority every day, basically. So this is part of creating a democracy where more people feel that they are engaged and more people feel that they can be part of the solutions uh, in our democracy. And that is extremely important. Dialogue, middle ground, those things are not weaknesses to me. They are strength of a democracy.
Let's talk now, Hella, about your relationship with the UK briefly, because I know that after studying in, in, in Denmark, in Copenhagen, you went on to, to study a master's degree in European studies in Bruges, where you met your husband, Stephen Kinnock, who's the son of former Labour leader Neil Kinnock, and now obviously a Labour MP in his own right. Um, how much was that a sort of meeting of minds and, and how inconvenient was it? Because, you know, here you were about to forge a political career in Denmark and you fall in love with with a, a man who's ambitious to do the same, but in the UK. How have you managed it? Well, first of all, when we met, we were really young. We met back in 92. So none of us, absolutely none of us, have thought we would go into politics. It was a very, you're at that stage of your life where you are in university, you're studying, and you actually don't have a real clear idea of where you're going to go uh, and where your interest will take you. Uh, and our interest took it to the College of Europe in 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 Belgium, uh, because we were both interested in European politics. So none of us had thought about a political career. And I think if anyone had ever told us how extremely difficult it would be to be from two different countries with different careers, so we might have, have thought uh, an extra time about getting together. But we met there, we were very young, and we had such a nice time meeting with loads of different people, understanding more of other cultures, understanding more of Europe. And of course, understanding each other's countries. I knew very little of the Kinnock family at that stage, uh, believe it or not, but it didn't play a big, I mean, we knew there was elections in 92, but it didn't play a huge role in my life. Uh, so we just met as two young people who, who really liked each other and became um, friends and, and then started going out. And yeah, we've been having a conversation and been going out uh, for 30 years almost now. I know these things shouldn't be an issue, but they do remain an issue for a lot of people. I mean, your mainstream political career took off before Stevens. Yours has been a very, very high profile career. It's meant you've had to live in different countries a lot of the time, you know, meeting, you know, at weekends or even less often than that how have you managed it because i think a lot of people you know on a on perhaps a more macro level have to deal with yeah. those same tensions and 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 forces well i don't know how we managed it but uh, somehow we it, it worked and i think the big the big part of understanding how it was possible was that i was a politician in denmark Denmark is an extremely nice place to have children. Uh, we have uh, childcare, which is extremely cheap and very, very high quality. Uh, it's very easy to have children in, in, the, in Denmark. We tend to leave the office much, much earlier than we do in the UK. Even as leader of the party and even as prime minister, I could sometimes leave the office at four or five o'clock, go home, pick the kids up and just have a normal family life. I did work very, very hard also in the evenings, but it was actually possible to combine being a parent and being a good and decent parent uh, and at the same time having children and having this uh, access to really good childcare. So I think that was part of the uh, solution that we actually managed to to get through this because I was in Denmark and Steve came from, from different places that he worked back to Denmark. So it was possible. It wasn't easy always, uh, and sometimes you just have to grit your teeth and get through difficult patches, but it, it worked. And, I'm, I'm, and we are so happy sitting back here, looking at our grown children now, seeing how they're developing, and that we managed to pull through and be a, a family through all this um, political turmoil and me going into politics, Stephen going into politics, and just about managing to make it work. 
we've talked a bit about balance and compromise, and obviously, you know, you've employed that in, in, in your personal life as well. I wondered if you think there's a difference between the way women in politics work and men in politics work. Because on the one hand, you know, I, I know that there's an argument to say we're the same, we're all different, women are all different and so on. But there is also an argument to say that there is a, a degree of yin and yang in the combination of both, and that should be why it's such a positive thing to see more and more inclusion of women in the political sphere. Yeah, I mean, I could talk about this for a very long time. Uh, I have become more and more convinced that the best, best leadership teams are the teams where you actively choose diversity. And that's diversity in, in all the aspects that you can possibly imagine. I've seen so many teams with the same white male uh, on that team, only to be disturbed by perhaps me coming in, which is also similar to a white male because I'm white and from a certain background. So I believe more and more that the best teams where you take the best decisions uh, also uh, in, in order to, to make money in a company uh, is actually the teams where you actively uh, choose diversity. Because what happens is when you have to have diversity is that you avoid a synchronized way of thinking, what we call groupthink. And the worst that can happen in a company, in any leadership team, is actually that you uh, you end up in groupthink. So that's why diversity matters. Uh, women and men are very different. We live very different lives. We get socialized in very different ways all through our childhood, not to our adulthood. And that's one of the reasons why you have to get more women involved in leadership. But you also see differences, of course, in social background, um, ethnic background. Uh, people with disabilities have to be part of leadership teams. So I have so strongly be, uh, come to believe in the power of diversity to take good decisions in any leadership teams because team because that is how you avoid synchronized thinking, which is so harmful to good decisions. So you'd be in favour of positive discrimination in that case and, and short lists, you know, all female or, di or diverse tick lists? I mean, I don't understand where you, why you would choose uh, all women shortlist or panels where there, you, you actually make sure that there is a diverse uh, panel. I, I think you have to vary it a little bit and, and see what how it fits the situation. So again, I would come in with pragmatism, but I would definitely not be against that you really try to solve for this issue, that uh, that homogenous leadership teams are the worst thing that can happen and you need to find a way of solving for it. Then when I meet women, they often, often put their hand up and they say, but I don't want to be chosen because I am a woman. I mean, we've all heard this argument many, many times. But I want to say to that, that in all my time, I've never heard a man put his hand up and say, I don't want to be chosen because I am a man. Uh, and this is uh, even though they've had plenty of time to do it, because for hundreds and hundreds of years, the biggest qualification uh, to be chosen for any position uh, was to have the right gender to be male. So I do think that women have to also embrace being chosen, of course, for their qualifications into any leadership role, but also accept that they get chosen because they are female. So this is what I want to say to particularly younger woman, women who always say this to me, accept that now you actually can be chosen because you are a woman, because we need more diversity in leadership team, and that in itself 
is a, a strength for the leadership team and remind yourself that uh, all through the thousands of years where men have been chosen because they were men, they never actually chose to put their hand up and say, oh, no, I don't want to be chosen because I'm man. I've never heard that in my life. No, and the argument is always, you know, where you don't want to ha- you know, have mediocre women, you know, b- b- people of ethnicity on boards. and things. But no one's ever worried about mediocre men. I mean, not every single man who's been involved in a position of power over the, over the millennia has been a genius, you know, has been utterly brilliant, haven't they? Exactly. And you also have to remember that qualifications and competences is not something that is invented in a gender neutral heaven. It's not something that has been uh, invented in a gender neutral uh, situation. So this is why we have to remember that also how we validate competences and qualification is also something that springs from the structures of, of our uh, communities and the way that we understand competences. So that's another added thing. But as you can hear, this is something I could talk about for many years because as I've grown older and also seen all these mechanisms uh, unfold in different uh, parts of of uh, society, I've grown very, very clear that um, that we have to change the structures to get more diverse leadership teams and we have to use all tools to do so. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hella, it's so frustrating because there's just so many things I want to ask you about. Uh, so I, I could carry on talking about that subject, as you might imagine. But I think we should move on, perhaps, to talk a little bit about Facebook, where you now have this position on the advisory board. Were you wary when a, a media giant, a social media giant like Facebook came knocking on your door? I mean, I know that you're a friend of Nick Clegg's and he was already there. Did it feel like you might be window dressing? When I said yes to being involved in Facebook's oversight board, I was very, very clear that we had to have guarantees from Facebook that we would be completely independent. So we're not, I'm not employed by Facebook uh, and what I'm doing is that Facebook has set up a trust, an independent trust fund. Uh, the trust is actually governing the oversight board, and we are completely free to say anything we want about Facebook. 
uh, when we take a decision about content on Facebook and Instagram, we are completely free to take the decisions that we want. And uh, the last part of this independence is, of course, that Facebook has to follow our decisions. And that's our decisions, but also we will give policy guidance to Facebook, which they have to consider. So someone has com some people have compared this to a, a court, uh, a high court looking into Facebook content. I don't like that so much, but I'm what we made sure when we stepped onto the oversight board, and I'm, when I'm saying we, it's me and all the other members, is that we are completely independent of Facebook. Uh, they can't fire us. They can't, on the basis of what decisions we take, uh, get rid of us. So I think this independence is extremely important. I don't see myself as hired by Facebook. I don't work for Facebook and I can, I'm completely independent uh, of Facebook, but I'm helping. You know, obviously there's the online harms bill is about to be brought through in the UK. I'm currently making a panorama program about harmful sexual behaviour amongst young people, peer on peer, you know, amongst school children. And, and so much of, of those behaviours can be linked to the proliferation of pornography. A lot of that is accessed via social media. I mean, my 17-year-old daughter turned around to me the other day and, and I spent 10 years fighting with her about her smartphone and turned around to me and she said, I think that um, children under 18 shouldn't be allowed to have smartphones because of the harm of social media. And I was so shocked to hear her say mm. this and you know it feels like perhaps a, a, a changing tide how do you make social media into a positive force uh, and do you see and agree that it has in many ways been a negative um, uh, force amongst certainly the generation who've grown up completely unprotected from it you know we we monitor their lives in the real world but we've actually failed to monitor or to equip them for the online world this is an enormous question, but basically I think that social media has been a force for, for good, for democracy. I have also, in the time I was with Save the Children and uh, CEO Save the Children, met so many uh, people who via social media could get agency, could get a voice that they would never, ever have had if it wasn't for social media. It could be uh, poor women in a country. It could be the opposition in a country where, the, uh, where some kind of dictator was trying to uh, stifle their voice. So I think social media have had an enormous impact on democracy and given agency and voice to millions after millions of people. It is also true, as you're saying, that there has been negative impact of social media. And what we have to do in the next years is to find ways of regulating social media where I believe in uh, self-regulation more than I believe in hard legislation in this area. And that's where the oversight board comes in. We also have to educate our children and talk much more to our children about how they should use social media, how they should shut down social media uh, and how they uh, and how social media also can help young, ch uh, young uh, people to make this self-regulation in themselves. So I think we are on a learning curve uh, on this path. But to say that social media should be abandoned or that young people shouldn't use social media, I'm not sure that's the right way to go. With so many other things that can be toxic, we have to find a way of balancing how we use social media and what limits we have with social media. But social media giants, tech giants, have had the opportunity to self-regulate and 
haven't really availed of it to any degree that's satisfactory to this point, have they? And I'm interested in how someone as a social democrat as uh, like yourself would see uh, self-regulation as the sort of holy grail because it feels to me that this is a perhaps a, a, a business, an industry that's you know, expanded too much, too far, and now has so much control over how we live our lives, as you say, without any regulation. And and we're now asking them to self-regulate. I I, I personally think that social media has self-regulated. They have had their community standards. They have tried to live up to human rights. Uh, have they done that enough? Uh, certainly not. But they are getting better every day. When I talk about self-regulation, I'm talking about something like the Facebook Oversight Board, which is outside Facebook uh, and regulating in accordance with human rights and, of course, their own community standards. So I do think we have to find a way which is not hard legislation. I really advise against hard legislation in this area because I'm, I'm seeing so many countries that are undemocratic and where the government's uh, would want this opportunity to stifle free speech uh, and push back opposition groups. Look at Belarus, look at Russia, Turkey, uh, to a certain extent Hong Kong. There are so many places where opposition groups are pushed back. So I really would warn against uh, hard legislation in this area. And that's why we're in a position where we have to find new ways of regulating social media. And perhaps this is where something like the oversight board comes in, because that is detached from social media itself, but it's also giving rules that they have to follow. So I, I, again, I don't like this black and white thinking. Social media has been bad. We need to push it back. They've gone, become too big. Perhaps they have been, to a certain extent, been extremely good for democracy. Uh, and the and mm. bigness is not what's the problem. What is the problem is that we haven't agreed how to use social media and also how to regulate social media. And we need to find a way which is not hard, uh, hard reg regulation, which is not social media themselves regulating, but is something in between. And that is exactly how I see the, uh, the oversight board. You mentioned um, your time as CEO of Save the Children, and I wondered at this particular uh, juncture, you know, after the, the last year and a half of, of pandemic and so on, you know, you were leading an organisation focused on improving children's lives and indeed saving children's lives. And a large part of that was, was vaccinating children around the world. And at the moment, we have a very strong contingent of people who are anti-vaxxers, who, who, you know, feel very strongly that vaccinations are bad, um, dangerous, and so on. Does, does that seem quite ironic to you when, when, when you spent those years devoted to kind of getting as many children across the globe vaccinated as possible from other harmful uh, viruses and diseases? Yeah, I, I have actually been vaccinated in, uh, against uh, this, this view of vaccinations. I worked for an organisation which, which was trying so hard to get to the last children with vaccinations that could prevent them from dying. I've seen children being vaccinated on the trees, uh, in makeshift areas in Yemen, in war zones. And really, I knew when they got vaccinated that they got also protected uh, from really dangerous diseases. So for me, vaccination, I've seen that how that is a question of life and death. And that's why I also always look at this conversation about vaccinations also in our part of the world, not necessarily COVID vaccination, but look at vaccination as a little bit of a luxury program, a luxury problem, because I've seen the vaccinations programs that we have rolled out and say the children 
saving so many children. So, so that's how I view vaccines. Everyone is entitled to their own opinion about their personal uh, vaccine. Uh, but I do think that the fact we now have a vaccine against COVID uh, is fantastic. It shows us uh, how progress can help us all to survive. And I'm only hoping that the skepticism around that vaccine in our part of the world will not impact too many people in, for example, uh, African countries, where we are seeing that our he hesitancy is actually putting hesitancy into African, the population in African countries. And that could mean the difference between life and death for many, many people. Don't forget that we won't get rid of COVID the next 10 years, and the people who will die from COVID over the next 10 years will not be vaccinated people in our part of the world, but will actually be unvaccinated people in, in poor parts of the world. So that is why I always put the vaccine into context to see how will this actually work for the poorest children, the poorest people uh, in this world, and always ask, is this actually helping them? And there's no doubt that the vac vaccine hesitancy in our part of the world is not helping um, the poorest people in the rest of the world. And just finally, you are one of a very small minority in terms of having led your country as a woman. I wondered what advice you would offer to any young women or wannabe prime ministers listening now. What does it take for a woman to become the leader of a country? It takes so many things. It takes that you are prepared to get out of your comfort zone and dare uh, saying yes to things. Uh, my story is that I often have not been scared of failure. Uh, and in order to get to the position of prime minister, I had to win many, many battles to get there. And one of the things that I really learned about myself is that I was never afraid of, of failure. Most people are very scared of failure, but if you want to re reach those positions, you have to step out of your comfort zone and not be too afraid of failure. Thanks for listening to Mariella Meets with me, Mariella Frostrup. There'll be more from the podcast next week, so make sure to download the free Times Radio app to never miss an episode. And don't forget, you can catch the live edition of my program every Monday to Thursday, 1 till 4 on Times Radio. Catch you next time.